That morning, let's pray. I'm going to um, try and give you a bit of an overview of Colossians this morning, um, which feels a bit foolish. Uh, I think we will skim over lots of stuff, and you'll have lots of questions, but please, please keep coming back week after week, um, and hopefully some of those questions will be answered. Let me pray for us, though, um, that the Lord would be with us and speak to us. Father, thank you that we have your living and active word in our hands. And we pray that you might use it this morning, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring challenge. Lord, we know how easily we can shrink Jesus, as the children were thinking, and so ask that you would help us just a bit this morning to see more of who he is, of what he's done, and of what that means um, for each of us in the context that we live in. In his name we pray. Amen. What I have in my hands here this morning is, what well, I'm told, a superfood. This is a innocent smoothie thing. In it there is, there are, shall I say, three pressed apples, a crushed pear, a third of a crushed peach, courgette, uh, half a squeezed orange, some crushed spinach, of course, there's kale, there's a squeeze of lemon, there's a, a splash of safflower and spirulina extract, and there's even a splash of baobab extract. Is that how I say it? Anybody? There we go. Thank you very much. Because um, it's got all that stuff in it, I know it's going to be really, really good for me, and therefore I know this is going to be probably the best sermon you ever heard. <laughs> but why do we have these things? Why is there such a, a booming health industry at the moment? Why are we so obsessed with food and, and what goes in? Why these kinds of things? I take it, and I'll put that down, I'm not going to touch it, I take it, it's because we want to be healthy. I'll take it, it's because we want to have energy, we want to grow well, we want to be good stewards, perhaps, of the bodies that we've been given. And in one sense, that's not at all a bad thing. There's a danger of that, that extreme becoming an idol, us screaming against our mortality and thinking we can live forever if only we'll eat these things or drink these things or do this stuff. But of course we want to be healthy and to grow and to thrive, of course we do. Our diet, what goes into us, has a huge impact to play in that. And isn't that true in our spiritual life as well? If you're a Christian here this morning, I take it you want to grow as a believer. You want to grow as a Christian. Who doesn't want to grow? You want to grow in wisdom, in maturity, in Christ-likeness, in godliness. I take it that is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. Who doesn't long for more? Of course we want to grow in health and vitality and maturity. Of course we do. And so you see, when we read that book, or we hear about that conference, or we hear about that church, or that blog, or that article, and someone comes up to us and says, do you want to grow as a Christian? Well, here it is. This is the silver bullet, they say. This is what you need. This is the book that you need to read to grow as a Christian, to be mature and healthy and whole. This is the conference you need to go to. This is the church that you should attend. This is the technique that there is 
which will cause you to mature and grow. This is the online course that you need to take. These are the rules that you need to keep. Do this and you will grow as a Christian. And we're all ears because who doesn't want to grow? We'll try pretty much anything. And to be honest, that's what Paul is afraid of in Colossae. As he writes to this church, they want to grow, but they'll try pretty much anything. And they have. And of course, there's nothing wrong with growth. We'll dig in here next week as Paul opens up the letter for us. But the prayer that he begins with, have a look down. The prayer that he begins with is a prayer about growth and fruitfulness. So verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world. Or verse 10, bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. He longs and he prays that they would grow, that they might see that the gospel is the way to growth. This is a prayer for growth. But he's concerned for them, that they want this spiritual reality. They want to be flourishing and to growing, but they've been looking in all the wrong kinds of places and doing all the wrong kinds of stuff. And some of the things we'll see they've been sort of feeding themselves on sounds wise, it sounds spiritual, it sounds good. But as we'll see, they've been incredibly detrimental, profoundly dangerous. Have a, have a look ahead to verse 8. I'm going to do quite a bit of skipping around, so do keep your Bibles open. Um, 2 verse 8 there. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Or again in 2 verse 18, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. It's language of captivity, it's language of disqualification, it's... Language of dead ends and death. This is not neutral. This is not just, well, you have your ideas about secondary things and that's okay for you, and we'll just agree to disagree. No, no, it starts out with this good need, this desire for growth, but then it ends up bringing death and decay. So to try and get some of our bearings and have a look at some, one of, some of these things that they're getting lost in, some of these dead ends that they're finding themselves down, and then we'll think a bit about how they relate to us, because it feels, we'll see that it feels quite sort of specific and narrow, and this is a particular context, a particular church at a particular time, and it feels a long way from us. But actually, I think what we'll see is it's incredibly contemporary, and exactly where we are. It seems what's happened in Colossae is that either the church has imbibed a sort of spirituality of the local culture, the spiritual vibe of Colossae, or, or you've got travelling sort of salesmen, religious salesmen, who have brought their ideas in. Probably it's a bit of both. They come in peddling their wares, speaking the language of the culture at the time, and the Colossians have bought it. And what are these ideas? Well, the first thing you'll see... As you read through the letter, and I'd encourage you to do that, we'll be going to go through it in home groups as well, but maybe have a read of Colossians this week. You'll notice there's language of what you know really matters. There's the language of wisdom, of knowledge, of understanding. Again, let's just kind of fly over and pick some verses and you'll see some of that. And so 1 verse 9 and 10, we'll see uh, next week that there's the language of Paul wanting that they will have an authentic knowledge that they would fill him with the knowledge of, God would fill them with the knowledge of his will. They'd have wisdom and understanding that they would know him even. 
So there's a knowledge thing going on. It's, it's more as well. 128, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Or 2 verse 3, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or next page, 3 verse 10, they're being renewed in knowledge, in the image of God. So why this focus? Why this drumbeat through the letter to do with knowledge and wisdom and thinking? Well, do you remember 2 verse 8? They've been or they are in danger of being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophies. Can you hear them? Come on, Colossians. Come on, Christians. Let me help you just grow up a bit in your understanding. Here's the missing piece you've been looking for. Here is that idea which will make everything else click into place and you can get into the fast lane and start growing up properly as a believer. Here is why you have stagnated in your walk with Jesus. Here is the key to open up the next level. And what is the answer? What is this key? What do they need? Well, there's a lot of what you do or what you need to do in the letter. Again, we're kind of reading between the lines because we just hear one side of the conversation. But let me try and paint a picture again with some verses. So 2 verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. 2 verse 16, therefore don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. 2 verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with yeast, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Okay, so try and piece them together, and we're kind of in the realm of probably Jewish rules and rituals, fasting, festivals, kind of harsh treatment of the body seems to be in there as well. It's a list of what you can and what you can't do. Maybe a bit of going back to what was under the, the old covenant before Christ. But it's all about what you do in your body. This is how you mature. Do these things, get involved in this, and you'll find that you start to really grow, to really flourish. That's the kind of stuff they're saying, I think. And then that leads to what you experience as well. So it's all to do with what you know, which then what you do, which then leads to experiences. And so you get 2 verse 18, sort of slightly enigmatic. Don't let anyone who delights in the false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. Talk of mystical experiences, worship of angels. And Paul says it all sounds kind of very elevated and otherworldly and humble. But just dig a bit and you'll see that they are proud. They want to tell you about themselves and what they are experiencing. This is all about me, puffed up. And so, friends, you see, in answer to the question, how do I grow? It seems to me their answer comes from the spirituality of their age. And it turns out the culture of Colossae in the first century is not far from the culture of Oxford in the 21st. And the spirituality of the age then and the age now could not be more different from the reality of following Jesus. Do you see why? Because it's all about me and who I am, and what I have to do. 
rather than looking at him and seeing who he is and what he has done for us. And so if you want to grow as a Christian this morning, I think we'll see that the message of Colossians is in one sense, let's just take our eyes off ourselves for a bit and let's put them on him and see who he is. And yet in Colossae and in Oxford, so often we are urged to consider yourself, put yourself first, we hear. Think about your own needs. Put yourself at the centre. Love yourself, we're told. Here's what, here's what you must do to grow. Do these things, you individual. And as Matthew was saying to the children, it doesn't seem that they were completely getting rid of Jesus. They weren't just saying kind of, get rid of him altogether. I guess if you were to have a conversation with them, they would want to honour him. They would say he was important. They would see that Jesus is, is, is really key. But it seems to be he's just the sort of starter for ten. He's just the foundation to build upon. They'd say, it's great that you've begun with Jesus. Now, let me tell you how to move on a bit. You need to move on from this sort of childish, elementary, kindergarten-type faith stuff. Come on, that's a bit simplistic. Move on from that, and let me show you how to really grow and to flourish, to move on. It's a bit like when you um, first learned to drive a car. I remember it well. You start off in first gear, and I remember driving for 30 minutes in first gear, turning left and left and left and left because of where we lived. Genuinely, that was it. The next one, 30 minutes, I went into, into probably third gear, and I turned right, and I did a mini roundabout or two as well. It seems to be that, that in Colossians, Jesus is portrayed as a sort of necessary starter, the grounding you need at the beginning, but then the one that you should pull away from. Just get out of first gear, maybe into third, into fifth, and let me show you how to grow up. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like those questions which float around saying, there must be something more to it than this? Do you remember that early prayer, perhaps, with a parent that you prayed as a child, that commitment on camp as a teenager, the, the decision you made at university, whenever it was, and you think, it's 15 years on and I'm still struggling with that sin. Have I missed something here? It's 20 years on and I don't really feel like I've grown that much, if I'm honest. 30 years on and it's the same old stuff. Surely I should have had this sorted by now, we think. And so we look for the books and we look for the conferences and we look for the churches where we must go, what we must do that we might grow up a bit more, a bit faster. But the answer is, the answer from Colossians is, we don't move on to something new. We don't move on from the gospel. We don't start borrowing from the spiritual vibe of the age. We go deeper and deeper and deeper into all what we already have in Christ, into the gospel of grace. We grasp more and more of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so here are the key verses from the letter that show us that. 2 verse 6 and 7. 
If you want to get a tattoo this next term, these are your verses. Don't, by the way. But it's, it's, it's quite a long passage. You need a, an arm or a leg or something. But anyway, 2 verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And overflowing with thankfulness. And that thankfulness word... That thankfulness word is a key one, as Paul writes to these Christians. I guess to be thankful, you need to have plucked what it is you're really thankful for. What you have will make you thankful. And they've lost sight of what they have. And so again and again and again, he talks about thankfulness. Again, just fly over with me and you'll pick up some of them. This idea of thankfulness. 1 verse 12, he'll pray that they are joyfully giving thanks to the Father. 3 verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 4 verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Do you know, if you're, if you're one of those people who maybe struggles a bit with thankfulness, Maybe Colossians is a kind of book for us. People for whom Jesus has just shrunk a bit and the stresses of our lives have just got a bit too big. So we find thankfulness really hard. I think this is a book that will expand and grow and stretch and rub in who Jesus is and what he's done. Our grasp of him, how beautiful he is, how much we need him. And it's just worth saying as well, this isn't primarily learn more about Jesus as a concept or as an idea or as a philosophy. That's not what we're going for. This is get to know him better, that you might appreciate him more, that you might love him more. See who he really is, and it will change everything. And as soon as someone says to me, guys, you've got to be more thankful, I think, you don't know my life. You don't know my junk. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know the reality of this last week. You don't know the frustrations, hardships, disappointments, setbacks, hurts, squabbles. You don't know how they treated me. Telling me to be thankful. And Paul blows their minds with how big Jesus is. His antidote to their wrong strategies for growth is, as Matthew was saying, turn the binoculars around. Look at Jesus. Look at him. You've missed how huge he is, how incredible he is. You've missed all you have in him. And in their world, Jesus has shrunk. And he's just a bit safe. And a bit domesticated. Not the kind of person we need to really kind of give our all to. But he's a nice little add-on. It's good to have him. But Paul says, look at him, he's incredible. Why has Jesus shrunk in the letter? I think that's quite a helpful question to think about. Again, it speaks to us in our context, I think. Either, I think it's just a simple outworking of the the unhelpful emphases that they have. That is, practically speaking, if you spend your whole time on special knowledge, on special rules, on special experiences, what you do 
sorry, what you think, what you do, and then what you experience, the reality is Jesus will just end up shrinking. Your focus will be on them in the end. The silver bullet will take over and you will lose sight of him. It's like when you have exams. Do you remember exams? You've got revision, you've got deadlines, you're cramming, and all the other important stuff kind of goes out the window. You forget to eat or sleep or wash or whatever it might be. The, the exams take over, and those other things become a bit secondary. Well, so maybe the, these silver bullets have taken over, and Jesus just kind of passively becomes a bit secondary, a bit smaller, less important. So either it's that, or there's a deliberate assault on Jesus going on. I think there's a fair bit of evidence for that, actually. Maybe it's a bit of both. You see how Paul describes Jesus to them, and you're thinking, okay, there's some stuff going on here. Maybe, maybe it was an early form of a heresy called docetism. That is, Jesus was God, he was divine, but he's not really human. He just kind of appeared to be human, actually. Appeared to have a body, appeared to do bodily stuff, but wasn't really human. And so maybe when Paul says 2 verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, then it's a pushback against that. Or actually, maybe it's the opposite in one sense as well. Maybe they're going another way. Heresy is called adoptionism. If you want to look them up, they're fine. Um, You'd say the opposite. It would say that Jesus was fully human, but actually he wasn't fully divine. He was just a man. He wasn't God, and at some point he was kind of adopted in. And so again to verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Because it's both and, guys. Don't lose sight of who he is. This is the creator God taking on flesh, coming to live among us in bodily form. Your Jesus has shrunk Let me try and show you who he is. You don't need to go anywhere else. Another theme that we get, which just shows us this in action, is this idea of fullness. You get it particularly in the first half of the letter. And to boil it right down, he he says, Christian, you have total fullness already because you have the full message about the full Jesus, basically. You have fullness already because you have the full message about the full Jesus. Again, give me some um, verses. So 119, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. 125, I've become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. 2 verse 2, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so they may have full riches of complete understanding. 2 verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in body form bodily form and for a church thinking Jesus he's just a good starter you know he's just the first gear we need to move through and move on from no says Paul you've missed it you've missed it you have total fullness already because you have the full message about the full Jesus I just need to help you see who he is and all that you have in him You've missed it, says Paul. Makes me um makes me think of the proverbial, do you know the antiques roadshow kind of scenario? 
Do you know, the editors love to ham it up, don't they? It's the rags-to-riches account of some treasure that's been discovered. There it was in the attic, overlooked, given to you 50 years ago by your great-aunts. And you thought it was pretty nice, but actually it didn't really fit with the colour scheme, so you just kind of left it on a shelf somewhere and covered it up with other things. The next decade, it just lives there, getting dust on it, and take it for granted, and suddenly, Antiques Roadshow in town, and someone says, you should maybe go and take that along and, you know, see... See whether it's actually worth anything. Either that or let's give it to a charity shop. And there you are, sat in front of cameras with your expert sat in front of you saying, where did you get it from? Tell me the story. And everyone is gathering round because they tell you what you've got. And it was just sat on the shelf gathering dust, but it is so precious. And they show you how much it's worth and it's going to change your life forever. It's beautiful. Well, so here, this story of Jesus that's maybe been sat on the shelf gathering dust for the Colossians, Paul gets it down and says, look, guys, you've missed it. It's beautiful. It's going to change your life forever. It is far, far more important than you could ever imagine. Colossians, Magdalen Road's, Get them off the shelf, get the dust off, and think about Christ. How do you grow as a Christian? It's not in what we do and running after other things and experiences. and It's just buried down into this gospel that is ours. Get rooted and established in him. And when we say... Is this really it? Seriously, is this really the plan? Is this really what being a Christian is about? Because I do look back 15, 20, 25, 30 years and I'm thinking, why am I still struggling in these things? Why? When we're tempted to look elsewhere. This term, let's pray that we might have hearts captivated afresh by Jesus. Seeing his beauty, his necessity. It's why in 15 to 23, chapter 1, that glorious purple passage that I'm sure you've read before, he will magnify Jesus for us. This Jesus, he is the king of creation. He is the king of the new creation, the church. He made it. It's for him. Don't let him shrink down. It's why Paul will say quite personally in 1, 28 and 29, This is his, Jesus is his motivation for ministry. This is why Paul does what he does. Jesus is the message that Paul will speak about. He is the fuel that will keep him going. He is the goal of where it's all going and presenting people mature in Christ. It's all about Christ. It's why he'll show us in the second half as well that Jesus is not just for sort of full-time workers like Paul, but just for normal people on a Monday morning, shaping how we live. And there is this huge irony, actually, as you read Colossians, the shape of the letter. We can get through chapter 1 and 2, and we're sort of blown away by Christ. Wow, he's amazing. I'd forgotten how good he was. And then we get into chapter 3 and 4. It's like, right, what have I got to do? Let's get on with it. And we feast upon him in the first half of the letter, and then we kind of default back into legalism mode, chapters 3 and 4. 
in terms of behavior and how we treat each other. And we, we forget chapters one and two. We forget Christ so easily. We don't bring him along to the party when it means, what does it mean to be a Christian at work or a husband or a wife or a parent or whatever it might be. And again and again and again, though, Paul will instruct them how to live, but related to the first half, to who Christ is. He is, as some people put it genuinely, the, the way into the Christian life, but the way on in the Christian life as well. So have a look down at um, a couple of examples, just the sort of practicalities of how this works out um, in chapters 3 and 4. So have a look down at 3 verse, uh, let's go 3 verse 12 to 13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay, what are we to do? Well, verse 12, we're to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Cool. Verse 13, what are we to do? We're to bear with each other and forgive each other. How do we do this? We knuckle down, we look inside, we grit our teeth and we get on with it, yeah? No, we remember we are God's chosen holy people, verse 12. Because of our identity in him, because we are his, then we live like this. Or or verse 13, we, we forgive, why? Because that's what Christians are meant to do. No, because we are a people who have been forgiven. Forgiveness marks us because we know forgiveness ourselves. Do you see, the gospel of grace, the enormity of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus intertwined with daily life, intertwined with the squabbles that we have at home or in the workplace or whatever it might be, we forgive because he's forgiven us. Or another example, three verse... um, 22 onwards, I'm not going to make particular comments on the the legitimacy or the ethics of this kind of slavery, the direct parallels or not with our workplace environments, but just notice again what he calls them to do and why he calls them to live like this. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, we know this one, don't we? Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, again, simple question. What are they to do? Slaves, verse 22, they are to obey their masters in everything, okay? Verse 23, not just when they're in the room, but whatever you're doing with all your heart. Masters too, provide for your slaves what is right and what is fair. But why are they to live like this? Because of the gospel of grace. It's peppered all the way through. We just kind of gloss over and look for the to-do list. But why are we to do it? For the slaves, verse 22, it's out of reverence for the Lord. That is why... You are to work in this way. Well, verse 23, because you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, which I presume it means because he is kind and loving and gracious. It's not because we're kind of scared of him and he's a bad master, but because of his kindness and love for us. Then we work as if for him. Why? Verse 24, because there'll be an inheritance. It's him that we're serving. Or well, for the masters, again, 4 verse 1. 
Provide for your slaves because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Do you see, if you're a lazy worker or you are a domineering employer, the tactic to being more godly in the workplace is to remember Christ and who he is and what he's done for you. That's the answer. And so Paul wants to stretch our vision of Jesus. Remind us who he is and what he's done. And let him shape the dark bits of our lives. The kind of nitty gritty squabbles. The moans, the frustrations. Let those truths soften you and shape you and change you, melt you. Paul won't let us divorce the theology of chapters 1 and 2 from the reality of chapters 3 and 4. These glorious, lofty ideas have nitty-gritty, low-level applications, implications for us. Jesus changes everything, all of life. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would stretch our grasp of who Jesus is. That you would, as Paul was going forward with the Colossians, you would blow our minds, you would soften and melt our hearts when we see his beauty and our need of him and the new life we have in him and in how that shapes the rest of life. Father, forgive us for our, our short-sightedness. Forgive us for our forgetfulness. Forgive us for the way that we can look at chapters 1 and 2 and be blown away, but in such a way that it doesn't actually change our relationships and how we live in this world. Do a work in us, we pray. We pray that for us as a church corporately. We pray it for us as individuals. We pray that we might finish this term being a healthier, more mature, more Christ-like church, both in our understanding and, and grasp of who you are and what you're like. But more than that, that we might know you better and live for you. Conform us, please, more into the likeness of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.